let me take a look at the code really quickly here. You say off the pod research, and then you know we're going to do it. Right <laughs> yeah, we're going to look right now. <laughs> All right, we're rolling. Okay, cool. That was a <laughs> an interesting way to start. <laughs> yeah, my, my phone. I'm trying to record on my phone today um, because I'm I'm not at home and uh, like my phone was overheating and then it got like it went on vibrate mode, but then it just didn't stop vibrating. So it's just a constant. Zzz, it kind of sounded like a like a razor. Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. Uh, like right as we started, your phone just immediately like I could hear it just like zzz, uh, just vibrating. Yeah, who knows? It may explode during this episode, and then I'll switch to my other uh, webcam. But yeah, I figured I'd give it a shot. Awesome, awesome, dude. How's it going? You adjusted back to normal life from the live hacking event scene? Uh, not really. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I, I've been I've been pretty Still rough. In the fallout. Uh, I was not. Fe- yeah, still in the fallout, not feeling uh, super great yet. I think my sleep is still like adjusting. And uh, it was weird because when I was traveling, I don't know if this happens to you, but I was sleeping like three, maybe four hours Are a night. Are you serious? Like, oh my gosh. For, two, for like two weeks no straight. Way. And I was functioning like totally I fine. I would die. Like, I, I would totally die. Even like looking back, I was like, in the moment, I was like, I have no idea how I slept four hours last night because I don't feel like it. And I was just like, going through a whole day like not sleeping until like 3 a.m oh and then i'd wake up at like 7 30 and like be fine and then i got home and i've been sleeping more than i usually do like seven and a half hours and i feel like terrible Dude, <laughs> i'm like trying to like figure out what i it have is. no idea how you do that because i i mean i did that maybe one night maybe i got like a six and i was still doing fine the next day and i was like all right you know circadian rhythms hacked um, but no, if I get less than six, I'm, I'm done for my dude for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's normally how I am. Like anything less than six and I'm, I'm doomed even like, I mean, anything more than six doesn't really seem to help me either. Um, I generally like have pretty bad sleep. So even if I sleep like eight and a half hours in a night or something, which never happens for me, but I probably just still feel the same. Wow. So it kind of just takes like a couple hours for me to like fully wake up. And then I'm, I'm like, good to go yeah, but, i definitely uh, need it's like a slow i roll. definitely need more than six though like six is like i'm skating by and then like seven or eight <laughs> is like all right i'm feeling rested let's go let's go get it so i don't know yeah i was hoping that magically when i got home i would like then be a night person and i would be able to stay up till 3 a.m and sleep four hours no. a night and get a bunch more work done but no no i am immediately back to like ah oh, it's nine o'clock it's it's time for bed well, you've, done, you've done a sleep study wake up too, at five. right yeah, yeah, and that really didn't like give me the answers I was hoping for. Like, I, th- I think for everybody it's a little bit different. But when I got my sleep study done, they basically were like, "Yeah, you like you snore a little bit, and you might want to look into that." I was like, "That's, that's it." They're like, serious? "Yeah, that's that it." Sucks, Good luck. <laughs> I was like, what? "Like, what the heck? Like, what am I supposed to do with this?" <laughs> so, yeah, I think for everybody it's a little bit different. But uh, you know, sleep study—if you can get your insurance to cover it, definitely I'd recommend getting one done just to like have the have the analytical data and like the input from a sleep scientist about what's going on. Yeah, for sure. My dad had one done and he had, uh, you know, got a CPAP machine or whatever and it like totally changed his life. So yeah. 
yeah yeah cool anyways um security stuff off the sleep and into the security right um so yeah yeah, so the first link i had in the news section for today was uh once again another banger from the asset note team and i'll give credit where credit's due this time this is not shubs even though it has asset note written on it this is actually dylan pinder which is a uh who's a security researcher researcher at asset note um, and this is about the ShareFile RCE, which is actually a product that I've used fairly extensively. So I was like, oh, what the heck is going on here? This is crazy how simple this RCE was. It's a beautiful exploit, but um, you know, the other stuff coming from AssetNode uh, a lot of times has been a lot more challenging than this one looked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's always, they're always, anytime you see a blog post from AssetNode, it's always very high quality and it goes into a ton of detail about like their thought methodology and mm-hmm. the path that they took to get there and uh, they do a really good job of explaining sort of like the attacker mindset as they're coming towards something that like from the title you can tell is very severe yeah. um you know it's an rce so i think that provides sort of a unique insight and oftentimes it's not like this super straightforward type of like oh i put like id like semicolon id yeah. in in a query right, parameter right, and it pops right. you know like it's usually a little bit more in depth and it goes into like how they discovered it and yeah. the files that they were looking for and the patterns and stuff and i think like that's really useful because a lot of times you see sort of like the black box approach where it's like i was just fuzzing this endpoint i saw an interesting parameter i tried a <laughs> command injection and it worked and that's it and you don't really get the understanding for like what that looks like on the on the back end or like the engineering side or like if you were doing source code review how that might um, how that might look. And so I think uh, it's really awesome to see the blog post that they yeah. put out because they go into that level of detail. Yeah, for sure. As always, I love the methodology and the write-up. They they talk about, they dump all the files. They they talk about um, this, this uh, I guess, function that's getting called to parse the cookie, set current principle from session cookie, um, which, you know, if you were just kind of looking through the code, you might assume that that, is going to be something that does, you know, an authentication check. And in fact, the title of that section, they, they titled authenticated, but not really. Um, because that once you double click into that, that, you know, that call, it just skips over it if it doesn't find the cookie that it was looking for. Um, and so it's like, okay, well, sort of that was going to be an authentication check. And there's some other pieces down the line where, um, you know, you would assume authentication was was um, was necessary, but they kind of, you know, weave around out of those and eventually end up finding a path traversal not in, um, let me see if I can find the name of the parameter. It's not in the parameter that you would think. Um, here it is right here. Yeah, so it's it's not in the parameter that allows you to specify the path. It's a it's a in the uh, upload ID parameter. Um and that gets concatenated with the path a little bit later. And even though the path is actually um sanitized, uh the uh upload ID is not, which meaning which results in the path traversal which allowed them to get arbitrary file right. So, that was a really I think that was right. a really good method. And then there, this one also sort of has a little bit of an a a twist to it which is you need to have a a valid parent ID within the application. And so that parent ID um you might assume would be something you might have to have like a valid folder or a valid um you know ID of a folder or something, but really they found that all you have to do is have a um string that does not fail when it gets uh, aes decrypted and so it doesn't matter what that string is it's not used anywhere 
but if it if it is if it gets uh you know if it passes the AES decryption then you're able to to do the attack so they they outline really well um how AES works how um the PKCS uh, 7 padding works and how they were able to use that to um, really reliably guess a value for this um, parent ID. I think it was only 128 or 256 um, tries that it took to brute force, and then they find a, a valid value that will pop and result in them getting a shell. So once again, you know, big round of applause to the Asino yeah, team. Awesome work. They they killed it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um it's really interesting because this is a something that we talk about in app appsec a yeah. lot where it's like validation versus verification and a like to like a textbook example is jwt tokens where they're just checking is this a valid jwt token not is the contents inside of the jwt token valid and so those are two very different yeah. things like if you're just checking that this is a valid jwt token it can de decode properly and that's it and you're not actually checking who signed it or is the key correct and is the person who they're saying they are in the jwt token actually who they are who they are like if you're not doing those checks, then that's where these little like weird, weird edge cases, because you might read through this and I'm sure it's like whoever wrote this, like didn't think that this was going to be an issue. They probably were like, yeah, just, you know, check if this is valid and mm -hmm. go forward. And that's not enough. You need to like also just verify, like do that extra step. And that that pitfall, I think, hits in a lot of different areas. Um, yeah. And, you know, this is just another example of, you know, in a big product as well, like just that classic kind of case where they checked it, but they didn't fully verify it. Yeah, I don't know about on the JWT front. I kind of feel like that's the whole sell of the JWT though, is that like, you know, it should be sort of self-authenticating because it's signed by the, you know, by the person that, that has the, the private key, right? So, you know, and obviously that doesn't always work out to be the case, but, um, you know, these different technologies do have their different pitfalls. And that is, you know, in, in the JWT scenario, as you mentioned, that if somebody does, you know, find a way to forge a token or get their hands on the private key or whatever, then you're just totally screwed. So, yeah. 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 So much of that comes down to like which library you're using too. Like if you're just using a library that separates out like mm -hmm. validation and verification, then that might just like put you in a big pitfall where you're using the built-in library or something, but it has an extra function that you needed to call and you didn't know it or something like that. And that oftentimes is just either a documentation problem or something even stupider than that. And, you know, it, it, it happens to everybody. So I think it's just, uh, you know, it's cool to see it in the wild. And uh, I think it's just something that you should always keep, keep an eye yeah. out for and, and just like, you know, check and see are they are they actually verifying my my jwt contents can i just give it any signed jwt and will it work yeah so um i guess bringing it back to the blog post i did have one more thing that i'll just try to explain from you know without you having to go and read the blog post which is like i i've done a couple deep dives on aes and um and you know the padding portion of it for padding oracle attacks so for those of you that have done that in the past and want a little bit of a refresher the way that the uh pkcs7 padding works is that you've got your you know you've got your 16 uh byte blocks and then when you don't have when your data does not sum up to 16 bytes the rest of that 16 bytes is filled by the value that is the number of remaining bytes so if you've got 15 uh you know uh, bytes in that in that block and you need to get one more that last byte is going to contain the a byte that points to one 
And if it's, you know, 14, then it's yeah, going like to have two, one. yeah, zero, zero, two, zero, two, right? Um, and so yeah. that that's something that I had back there, you know, in, in the memory database and that, but just doesn't come, you know, sometimes when I need it to. So there's your little refresher on, on um, AES uh, padding protocol for any of you that are interested yeah. in that, that low level of cryptography. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you see, probably see this a lot in CTFs yeah. too. Like if you decrypt an AES block and it's not exactly the block length, then it'll always have like trailing bytes mm -hmm. that usually are not printable because it's from like 0x01 to 0x0f. And so oftentimes you'll be like, oh, what is that? Oh, right, I need to unpad it. And there's like a some copy paste function that I always use off <laughs> Stack Overflow to do that in Python. Yeah, yeah, no. It, Python, yeah. man, this is just another great example because the exploit here is written in Python. Is like, you really, if you're going to try to get to this level of, you know, pro hacking, you need to be pretty handy with Python or, you know, some sort of scripting language so that you can just write out yeah. these POCs pretty quickly. Yeah, 100%. Alrighty, so let's see. What else we got on the list for today? Um, so, uh, Babuk Jain, mm -hmm. um, pretty well-known hacker. Uh, he tweeted out on Twitter, uh, when was this? A couple days ago, um, originally, that they had like a full read SRF in a headless Chrome instance. They were trying to escalate it somehow. They were trying a bunch of different things. They could access GCP metadata, but the creds were super restricted, so they couldn't really escalate mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. They tried a bunch of different internal and external subdomains. Again, couldn't really find anything useful, couldn't really escalate it asked for some help on Twitter and today they re they quote tweeted their own tweet and they said solved nice and so the solution was that they figured out that they could hit the Chrome debugger instance on port 9222 uh, on slash JSON specifically I believe um, which will dump I, I guess a lot of data about what's going on I've never actually used this mm -hmm. port so I'm not super familiar with how it works but he did link to some docs that describes like what this what this API is used for and the type of data that that is provided there. Um, and he said that it allowed exfiltrating data from other users who were hitting the Chrome, uh, the headless Chrome browser instance. So it seems that it basically gives like an overview uh, of all the data and stuff that's happening within that Chrome browser instance. And uh, that's a really awesome creative way to escalate that. I think that's a default port would be my guess yeah. the 9222 yeah that, that is a default port and I, I i threw this in the news articles for this week because we've mentioned this on the pod before the um the debug in instance there and it's great to see someone actually mm. pop something with it and that's um you know when you hit that slash json endpoint um on the on the dev tools protocol it dumps a list of all of the uh, available sort of WebSocket targets that you can connect to for the DevTools protocol. Um, and some of that stuff mm. will leak information about any other tabs that are open in the browser, right? So if you have other people using that headless Chrome instance, then that could absolutely leak information about, you know, what, what, what page they're looking at or what user information would be in there. Um, so that's, that's something that I hadn't, I was, I thought about that route a little bit more for like accessing sort of Chrome internals and being able to pivot around a little bit from there. But I actually didn't think about it just from like the raw, you know, data being leaked via that slash JSON endpoint about other users. So it's got sort of an application level, uh, you know, use as well when exploiting uh, headless Chrome instances. Yeah, super interesting. And I think like, it's also like, a kind of unique thing where we've we've talked about headless browsers specifically as well but yeah. um 
Like it's it's a unique attack scenario where it's not it's like more than an SSRF because you're in the headless browser specifically. And so this is the type of functionality that only exists in like certain scenarios. Um, but I think it's a good thing to put in your word list and and to check for it for sure. Yeah, let me go see um, if I can find the episode where we talk about that. It's I want to say it was one of the earlier on episodes where um yeah it was episode nine headless browser ssrf so we, we yeah. talked about that that was a fun yeah. episode because those are such cool that's it's such a cool bug class yeah yeah and live overflow replied to his his follow-up tweet and linked a video that live overflow posted nice. um uh, just almost two years ago now august 19th 2021 uh that talks about hacking a screenshot service so live overflow made uh, a screenshot like a headless browser screenshotting challenge for the cybersecurity uh challenge germany in 2021 and then made a follow-up video about like how it worked how to exploit it a bunch of different uh information about how you could go about escalating it and all that kind of stuff and um uh, uh bavuk replied to that tweet and was like oh yeah this is exactly what i did <laughs> so so uh, i think it's really cool you know just shows if you you know, follow Live Overflow. If you follow mm -hmm. the content creators who are making awesome, awesome content in the cybersecurity space, a lot of the time that will help you later down oh, yeah. the road, even if it's a video from two years ago. Yeah, for sure, man. I I've just started recently to appreciate, I think, fully how awesome Live Overflow is. They do a lot of really awesome content and really good methodology stuff too. So I think I think uh, you know I think as as a hacker that sort of I don't know. I feel like at this point I'm a little bit more focused on. Um, you know, doing the hacking and doing the research and stuff like that rather than, um, you know, consuming content on cybersecurity. Um, but I think I'm missing out a good bit because there's a ton of awesome content creators that have kind of sprung up since I started Bug Bounty that I've kind of missed out on. I kind of missed the the start of their, you know, uprise. And uh, I think I got to go back and kind of do do a little, you know, indexing of how awesome those people might be. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, there's so many people who are creating amazing stuff. Um, recently, I can't remember their names, but there's like one or two people who I've noticed a lot uh, in. Oh, by the way, your camera's completely frozen. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think it just died. I think it's done. It hit it it's, hit its, it's heat fried, limit. dude. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Rip. All right. Okay. Well, well, I'll just keep. I'll keep talking. Or should do you want me to pause? No, no, and no. We'll Go ahead. In? You're good. You're good. Continue. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So, um, no, I just think that there's a lot of really, uh, really interesting, awesome new talent that's popped up into the hacking space, not even specifically within Bug Bounty, but uh, just sort of like across the board. Um, and I think a good example is there's a couple hackers who I've noticed recently, and I wish I could think of their names off the top of my head or find them quickly. But they've been posting a lot of like hardware security mm, type mm. stuff. One of them has been doing a lot of mobile hacking where he's been taking especially these IoT devices like smart plugs or smart cameras and stuff and looking at how the mobile app is collecting that data, where is it sending to, uh, you know, what other data might it be collecting alongside of that with location data and that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and another one of them has been doing similarly a lot of like hardware stuff, but more on the hardware teardown side where they've been taking popular hardware devices or like I maybe love that cheap stuff, dude. Um, Alibaba type alternatives and tearing those apart and seeing like how does this work on the inside is this vulnerable in you know x y or z way um and i think you know just putting that data out there and having it somewhere that's readable in this case generally it's twitter threads um 
it makes for an awesome addition to the security like learning community where now you have additional resources that you can pull on and you can look at real world examples of how this type of stuff works. Yeah, for sure, man. Yeah, I, I love the, you know, we kind of talked about this before, but like teardowns and stuff like that, man, those things are so helpful whenever you're trying to like, yeah. you know, figure out how a device is working. I know I really heavily relied on some of those for some of the live hacking events we've done. And you just go online and you find someone who has like, you know, broken it out and like linked all the, uh, you know, FCC like pages and stuff like that. And I'm just like, oh gosh, I love you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I think, oh, I did find one of them um hacks rob he's the one who's been doing a lot of the like software side with mobile apps and figuring out how um how the how the app is collecting data and where it's sending to and all that kind of stuff h-a-x-r-o-b on twitter hacks rob uh and i wish i could find the other guy i know it starts with an a uh we'll link it we'll link it down below but yeah um you know, any, any info, info that you can put out there, just, I'd recommend trying to put it out there. I personally am not the best at this, honestly. Yeah, it's I'm, hard, I'm more of like a, I see a cool tweet and I retweet it <laughs> instead of creating my own unique content. But, um, I think, you know, I, I love to see that stuff, uh, out in the space and, and hopefully I can do a little bit more of it myself. I did find the other, the other person it's ATC one, four, four, one. Uh, I believe they also have a YouTube channel, which I think is how I originally found them. I was just like on YouTube and out of nowhere, this like hardware, like teardown hacking video, like popped up on my feed. And I was like, wow, that's like not something I see every day. And I saw his video and it was like really cool. And then he showed up on my Twitter feed as well. So yeah, ATC1441, he's more of like a hardware uh, focused hacker, I would say. Um, his most recent thread was a couple days ago, and he went over this. It's a called a data frog handheld emulator. Whoa, what uh, the heck? Yeah, it's very cheap. It's on AliExpress, and it's like you know, like a game handheld like emulator Game Boy knockoff type type device. You know, very cheap. Um, but you know, it was a teardown of like how it works, what the chips are, and that kind of stuff. And again, like this type of just. It, it doesn't have to be vulnerability research so much as just like informational knowledge and research and just sharing that out publicly is super useful for future research. I think a lot of the time you'll see, um, I, I mean, this has happened to me multiple times where I'm tearing apart a hardware device. I see a chip number. I Google that chip number. And the second link is a blog post that's titled reverse engineering the oh blank. My gosh, and it's dude, like, I'm that. like, oh, this is perfect. This is exactly what I was looking for. So Honestly, just putting that info out there is so useful um, and it's it's so great for future hackers, even if it's, you know, just some random thing that you're looking at. Yeah, like we said before, even if you don't get anywhere, just like, you know, having gone through the process, sharing your knowledge is, is super helpful. But like yeah. you said as well, it's very hard to do that. You know, it's not necessarily <laughs> the easiest thing in the world to do. So, um yeah. yeah, that that could definitely be that could definitely be something that if someone wants to sort of ease into content creation, that could be a great way to go. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So sort of along the lines of IoT devices slash application, you know, physical applications, um, this next piece that I had in the note was a, a tweet by Orange, which anytime Orange tweets anything, uh, for those of you that aren't familiar, it's Orange underscore 8361, um, yeah. Orange Sci on Twitter, uh, you know. This is something bad you got to pay attention yeah. to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah bad, bad news. news bears. If you're, the, if you're the target, bad. If you're if you're just a researcher, good. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Exactly. You wake up and you you roll over and you read that blog post right away. So that's what I did. And um, yeah, he, he wrote up a, a version of it. Um, 
talking about how uh, this specific Google search appliance, which is actually sort of like a on-prem version of Google search, which I didn't know existed, um, they, they kind of bought one on eBay and, uh, and pulled, figured out a way to get the, the firmware um, from like some old Google group, like, you know, weird Google group that shouldn't be public, right? Which is just like the most hackery thing. Like that is what yeah. we talk about all the freaking time. And he goes in there and he's like, okay, you know, here's a link to it. Oh, sweet. I can just like iterate through these numbers and download literally yeah. every single version of the firmware. And, well, and what's great is like, this is something I think I've done. Like I've oh, yeah. tried this 100%. before and it's, it's not worked. <laughs> like yeah. it's really awesome that this worked. Um, but like basically For he, sure. he was like looking on, on this forum thread from like, oh, when was this? uh 2015 or something oh my and gosh somebody linked and they were like hey i was trying to download this here's like the link but it's not working and so they took that link and they like went on web archive and they figured out the valid like version number ranges and then they just brute forced every potential file version like with that formatting on Dude. the same host and you know it came back with actual files which is also kind of crazy because this whole this whole product, Google Search Appliance, looks like it would be extremely deprecated by this point. But oh yeah, I'm sure. Uh, maybe it's being maintained to some extent, or maybe they still just have like versions of the files up there or something. But uh, it's really, really crazy that I, I, I mean, I had never even heard of this thing. I didn't even know it was a thing. I've never se seen a photo of one. Uh, I didn't know yeah, Google made hardware like this. So uh, I think as a hacker, if I had known this would if it would have existed, I would have been like. Oh, I want to get my hands on that. Yeah, if you scroll down to the very end, he has a timeline. Um, and it says that Google said the issue is not severe enough to qualify for a reward. Oh. And I'm like, <laughs> are you kidding me? This is RCE. But, you know, I, I think that's probably because this product is not being used, you know, or not being actively used by a large user base. And so the risk is just not there. But yeah. the 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 bug itself, the bugs, the the flow is really, really interesting. So definitely worth a read if you're interested in tearing apart IoT devices and figuring out exactly how he does it. And also, I just kind of love... Oh, actually, now that I'm going through it, he's got some of this stuff censored. Yeah, no, no, but some of the stuff is not censored. But if you scroll halfway down, he, he starts he starts doing, like, he writes in the post, like, all right, this is the contents of Etsy Shadow, right? And this is, like, <laughs> this is, like, the password to, like, you know, uh, this config, you know, sort of thing. I'm just, like, oh, my gosh, he just yeah. totally wrecked it. You yeah. know, when you're, like, writing plain text passwords of these, like, embedded devices all over the internet, um, super badass. And also I just wanted to shout out, I really do like the way that he broke down the various network services that are listening on various ports, the IP tables rules that, you know, show access to those, um, and that sort of thing too. That's a great way to sort of, uh, take a, an attack surface and, you know, get it in front of you, feel like you're actually able to work with it and understand all your different attack vectors in your routes, which really shows how he, you know, developed that methodology and why he is so good at what he does, you know, and this yeah. is the whole team. So I, it's not just orange, but this is his, the, um, the research team that he's associated with. Yeah. And even like in a recent life hacking event, I'm not going to name anything but we mm -hmm. saw an example of this exact type of thing where it's more of attacking like an appliance uh like or an os type package than it is like even a hardware device i because i think and i might be mistaken here but it seems like most of this was from software analysis like they got a firmware they pulled it apart they 
started figuring out like how does this OS work, what types of services yeah. are running, where what's the attack surface, all that kind of stuff. And we've seen that even like, you know, recently in the last, you know, month or two, where that same type of thing exists in modern companies, um, including Google, obviously. Um, and I think it's just a really interesting attack surface. I always love that type of stuff where it's like it's it's right there, like in your hands, and you just have to figure out like how it works and like pull it apart. And and once you can figure out how the secret sauce works, then that's usually where where all the vulnerabilities live. Um, but yeah. I, I also love that in the timeline, the first <laughs> the first entry in the timeline <laughs> is a CVE from two thousand five. Oh my gosh! <laughs> which, which is <laughs> it's like a a code like Java code injection. Yeah, oh Java gosh. code injection, and it's a CVE from two thousand five that links to a seckless, you know disclosure oh, <laughs> back in the wild west days <laughs> when it's, it's at, used to be like a mailing a, list <laughs> he's got like an at metasploit.com email <laughs> hd more this guy this is, this is legit so cool so cool yeah so that's a it's just a really cool really cool blog, blog post i'd recommend you give it a read just to again this is one of those rare glimpses into like who i would classify as an elite hacker Oh yeah, for sure. I'm just like understanding that mindset and the thought process and the exploitation process and the whole start to finish path of how do you take something as abstract as like a Google search appliance or like a server box or an OS image and take it all the way to a vulnerability that you can then report and get a bounty for. Oh and yeah. Well, hopefully. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm not. Yeah. yeah. In this scenario, he, he yeah. may be hoping to get a bounty, but uh, it doesn't look yeah. like they Google came through on that one. But um, just for those of you that don't get to go and read the blog post, um, the summary of what ended up happening here was after like dumping all of the source code and getting access to the the um, the firmware for this, uh, the <laughs> the uh, vulnerabilities which are you know, being exploited are actually very simple. We just, you've got a basic LF injection. Um, you know, something's getting, it's an, it's a command injection in a specific parameter, um, where you just put, you know, your, your, um, uh, what is it? Is it OA? Yeah, it's OA, uh, percent OA in the scenario and then add another command right after it. So it's just like a, a very standard no. shell, you know, injection. And then, um, and later on, they've just got a very textbook, um, uh, LFI or LFD technically. Um, and so these are also vulnerabilities that they were able to discover and uh, exploit from a remote perspective rather than, you know, uh, interacting directly with the physical device. Um, yeah. So from, from an exploitation scenario, you know, from an exploitation perspective, the bugs were not like blow your mind crazy stuff like you normally see with Orange and his research team. But the approach was really cool to breaking down an IoT device. And that was what I really appreciated about this article. Yeah, same. All right, last one for the um, for the news segment, and then we'll jump into the uh, to the content for this episode. Um, Bitquark finally, after four years, after four <laughs> long years of waiting, has released ShortScan, um, their tool for uh, exploiting the uh, tilde tilde you know enumeration method with um, window short names. Um, so that's really exciting for those of you that aren't familiar with that technique, uh, for specific IIS servers, actually a lot of IIS servers, um, this can help you enumerate the first, I want to say it's like six characters of, um, any file and folder. And then the first, uh, in the file extension for that, or the first three characters of the file extension for those files and folders. Um, 
And so that's it's really helpful for when you're doing recon on IIS environments. And uh, this tool utilizes some new techniques to try to uh, get you the full uh, path, the full file name, not just the short file name, um, which isn't present in a bunch of other tools that we use for this. So I'm definitely excited yeah. to give this one a poke next time I'm going after IIS uh, targets. Yeah, so I believe this is on any IIS uh, 8.3 and earlier, or maybe it's only 8.3, but um, but yeah, something like that. No, it's it's, it's, a, it's a ton of them. Yeah, they're like okay, almost cool. all of them are vulnerable to it by default, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's still definitely out there. It's funny because I was just looking back at the original repo from Erzdal, who I think we actually talked yeah. about last episode. We did, yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, he has like the OG tool for this is what i would say like i think i've been using the same tool since at least probably since the beginning of when i started using this i believe chubbs was actually the one who told me about this this vulnerability yeah. even existing same. um and if you look at the tool like the first uh well not the first commit but there is a commit in the root of it from Erzdal that is from nine years ago from from 2014 oh my gosh uh, <laughs> and the title of the repo is is short name scanner 20 uh, 2012 to 2023 and still giving so it wow. seems like this has been uh you know there for a very long time um it's good to see new tools pop up uh, that can do stuff either faster or better or in a different way um you know, as much as I love using tools that are written in Java, I think I would prefer one that's <laughs> written in Golang. So, uh, but that's not to hey, say that the, the original scale. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's a, that's the nice thing. So like the original tool um, is still, you know, being actively maintained. There was a commit two days ago um, and they actually, Erstel actually linked to Bitquark's short scan tool in the, in the IS short name scanner repo, the original one. So um, I think it's awesome um mm -hmm. you know it's awesome to see you know people still maintaining this stuff and making sure it works and adding new vectors uh, to yeah. make it quicker and easier to to scan yeah. and exploit so i'm not a huge recon guy as i've talked about on the podcast like i don't do a bunch of recon but this is one of the techniques that if you skip this you're really missing some gold because um, like, it, like, you know, if you're just, if you get a really finely tuned list, that's great. But if you're actually able to leak the contents of like arbitrary names, that is like freaking gold. Huge. I mean, so, there's so much definitely. hidden functionality, like just oh, that yeah. alone, like hidden functionality, web configs, like um, path reversals, knowing, knowing what files exist, like all that kind of stuff is, you know, super, super critical, like 99% of the time just oh, on yeah. its own and so being able to have that leverage that you can then exploit and know a path name or um maybe be able to access a file that you shouldn't be able to access or anything like that um you know this this type of info is super super helpful to have and i i think anytime i see an IIS server um i typically run it because it's a super easy win if it works and if it doesn't work it is very low cost yeah. So actually, when I was in the recon game, like I, I actually, I'll, I'll give this one away for you that are doing recon stuff. But I would actually have an automation that was de would detect IIS and then run this on every IIS server that was vulnerable, and then just take the output and like look at it for like sort of sketchy stuff, like dot back files, right? Like um, you know, backups or old files, and you know, and there's there's a bunch of other uh, regex that I had and stuff like that that would kind of trigger weird stuff. But um, yeah, you can find some really easy wins with like webconfig.back or something like that. Um, and this, this uh, tool can definitely tip you off to it. So keep that in mind and definitely check out Bitquark's new tool.
yeah for sure all right should we get Alrighty, into uh, our esoteric web vulnerabilities let's do it man um let me take a sip of water first because i've got a, a bit of a sore throat and then we'll get into it we're gonna have to move pretty quickly because we do cool. not have uh we've got a lot of of stuff to cover and not a ton of time but um yeah first up yeah. config file injection so while i drink this water tell the people about it cool yeah so config injection file injection pretty much what you would expect and we talked a little bit about this during the hardware episode i think yeah um but basically this is uh, if you're working with okay, a okay. system, actually, actually, hold on. Let, let me let me let me just stop you really quickly. There. Okay. So I I just wanna I just wanna highlight this before we jump right into this. Okay. So these vulns, what we're talking about today, like we said, like he alluded to, these are esoteric web vulns. These are vulns that are at the top of my list and in Joel's as well in some part. Um, that of vulns that I feel like you probably don't know about that you should probably know about because I see these a lot at live hacking events and I see these, um, you know, in the wild and bug bounty quite a bit and having these sort of tools in your belt, uh, really, really helpful. Um, so make sure you're paying attention, especially to these first couple ones, because they're they're really really helpful. Okay, yeah. Sorry, I wanted to wanted no, to give that totally fine. Joel, go go get it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I'll, I'll actually I'll tee off on that and say that um, some of them are more common than others. Yeah. Um, this first one probably not as common, but some of the other ones definitely a lot more common and definitely a lot more uh, instances of it out there that I think you could exploit. So mm-hmm. for config file injection, typically this is going to be a case where maybe there's a, a configuration endpoint. A lot of times this is on IoT devices or hardware devices or something more local because that type of stuff doesn't really get you know revealed externally for like a web service. Typically it's not going to be mm-hmm. writing to like its DHCP con- config or something like that from just like an API endpoint on you know example.com, right? I've but, seen it. I've seen it before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it exists. That's not to say it's not there, but it's a lot less common. And I personally have seen it significantly more often in like routers and uh, smart mm-hmm. devices and IoT whatevers, right? Like that's typically where you're going to see it is in the those type of more like niche devices that are much closer to like an API that's talking directly with the OS or the system versus an API that's talking to a service that's running on an OS within a system. Um, so config file injections is when you can write stuff into the config file. Um, oftentimes this, I think, w- in order to exploit it successfully, oftentimes you're going to need to have an understanding of what the config file actually looks like. So some type of file read or file disclosure um, or access to the OS verbose or error. Yeah. yeah, verbose errors, anything like that. Just to get an understanding for what the format is and what stuff looks like around it, I think a lot of these cases typically rely on like weird types of parsing behavior for you to be able to exploit it. So um, one example is DNS mask, where DNS mask, if you write multiple instances of certain directives within the config file, it will basically ignore the first instance and only read the second instance. But that's Mm -hmm. not true for everything. Some of the directives can only appear one time. And so understanding is your value being written multiple times? Is it being written one time? How long is the line that it's being written into? All those types of things really matter a lot. And so that's why having some sort of information or verbose errors or access to the file system or something like that is really, really helpful when you're trying to exploit these successfully. Mm. But they exist, I think, in a lot more cases than you might expect. And typically it's really just understanding what sort of weird functionality 
is built in and exists that you can then exploit to your advantage. So DNS mask, for example, has this thing called TFTP. I did not even know this was a thing until we <laughs> exploited it that one time. <laughs> so TFTP <laughs> is like a weird service. It's kind of like FTP and it, it runs on, what is it, port? Uh, I think it's uh, port 69. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's like, you know, super weird. Um, and yeah, you port can basically 69, love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can basically specify like a file path and it operates kind of like an FTP server in that you can just like read files. Sometimes you can write files. Um, there are weird permission checks and stuff. But if you can inject into, you know, the, the system config file, depending on who this is running as, what user this is running as, then you might have full root arbitrary file read through a completely separate port that wasn't even open or exposed initially. But because you've made changes to the config file, it's now listening on port 69. And now you can hit, you know, the file system and you can read Etsy password or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so like you said, you know, it's, it's very, it's very dependent on getting a good grip on where you're at in the system, which is why you see people like orange and, and, um, and, uh, the asset note team, whenever they're breaking down a target, they always, always, always tried their absolute best to get their hands on source code. Cause if you can get your hands on source code, you just get such a better understanding of what's happening and you can craft these crazy vulns that have these amazing outcomes. Um, and this config file injection piece kind of like, kind of like you said, it's a little bit rare, but I feel like it's not that rare in that, um, like a, a lot of systems that are interfacing with other services. So, you know, in, in the scenario that, that we were just talking about with DNS mask, you know, maybe you're spinning up a DNS server, right? And, uh, and, you know, you want to have DNS mask active. And so you're dynamically generating that DNS mask configuration file. And that's where the injection happens because you need to, uh, you know, spin up that DNS mask server with um, user input as the configuration file. And so, um, you know, situations like that, whenever you're interacting with other services, there's a, there's a high risk for this. You know, oftentimes you're injecting it via a template. Um, and you know, the templating doesn't necessarily have the right control characters to prevent you from escaping the block that you're in, in the code. Um, and we can use comments and stuff like that to clean up after us. So, um, oftentimes it's pretty easy to, um, inject into that configuration file, your own malicious input. Um, right. and that can, can result in some crazy vulnerabilities, but it's also going to result in some crazy exploitation scenarios where you are reading the documentation more than you ever yep. thought you would be reading the yep. documentation um, and getting very, very familiar, getting very intimate with, <laughs> this, uh, with this application, with the configuration that you're injecting into. And that just makes for some crazy, interesting and fun bugs. Yeah, and uh, it's so much more satisfying when it pops too, because oh it's, gosh, like, it, it's like you've gone through a whole journey just to get to that point and then finally everything works and your payload works and you pop it and it, you know, it calls back or whatever. And it's, it's awesome. Yeah. It's an awesome feeling. So, somebody asked me the other day, what is, what my favorite moment hacking was? And I had to put some thought into it and it, it but it was, I think it was one of the bugs I collaborated on with you when finally we shelled this, this IOT device. I was just like, Oh my gosh, I love this so much. Yeah. So, yeah. It was very, amazing. It was almost like clutch. a super culmination of, of so much time and effort and, yeah, the yeah. payoff is is super worth it. Yeah, for sure. So let me see if there's anything else um, here that we wanted to talk about. Um, yeah, so we, I guess I'll, well, you mentioned DNS mask. We've also seen this in DHCPD, uh, Nginx, and Apache um, configurations, uh, injections. So yep. definitely be on the lookout for anything that's sort of interacting with these services and keep um, file or config file injection yeah. in mind next time you're doing your next assessment.
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like if you see a DHCPD server, it doesn't mean that you need a zero day in DHCP or DHCPD. Like it right. doesn't mean like, oh, they're running the latest version, so it's not exploitable. Move on to the next thing. There's no CVE or whatever. It's totally up to configuration and how this stuff is working because it can be a perfectly regularly validly configured instance, but they're doing something wacky somewhere else within the system, and you can exploit that behavior to natively get a shell or escalate your privileges within the system. And that that's like the real powerful thing is it, this isn't like a zero day or anything. This is just how you can configure it legitimately to do mm -hmm. weird stuff that we can take advantage of as, as an attacker. Yeah, great summary. Yeah. Um, next one that I had on the list was client-side path traversal. Now, this one's a little bit weird because you'd think of path traversal normally as a you know, server side sort of thing. You're you're putting something in it, either a query parameter or a path, um, and you're directly in your URL, and you're getting to access to some path that you that you didn't previously have access to by using some iteration of dot dot slash or combination of dot dot slashes, right? Um, mm -hmm. Client side path traversal occurs when you are able to inject via a query parameter or a hash or something in the user's browser. So, you know, the user's clicked the link or you've redirected the user to a specific spot. Um, and that page is uh, loading a resource based off of your attacker-based input. So let's say, for example, you redirect them to uh, google.com slash example slash 1234, and they try to load a CSS page that that's like slash CSS slash 1234.css, right? So your 1234 from the path is being taken and put into a resource that's being loaded. Then, it, you know, if it's URL decoding it and stuff like that, you can try to use some um, path traversal sequences to hit a different part of the application, hopefully hit a, a redirect and get yourself a, a full CSS injection on that page, which as, as we all know from listening to other episodes of Critical Thinking can result in some very critical stuff. Yep. Um, so uh, that's sort of what I had on client-side path traversal. You got any other thoughts on that, Joel? Yeah, I mean, this isn't a client-side path traversal, but I think one of the things that's kind of closely related to this that I really like as a class of bug, and this is kind of, mm -hmm. it's not really talked about a ton, but I think it, it's like path traversal through ID. And oftentimes I see this uh. with, like, there's a post request that includes an ID in it, for example. there's Say it's a, posting a JSON body, one of the parameters is ID in the body, and it's a UUID or something. Mm -hmm. Well, oftentimes you can put, UUID slash dot dot slash some other arbitrary path, some arbitrary internal path or something. And that just gets fully concatenated in an, into an internal request. And it's it's like in the line of SSRF kind of SRF slash path traversal. Yeah, yeah. But it's a really, really interesting technique. And I see it exploited all the time, like all over the place. It's something that I now regularly check for whenever I see an ID being sent is let me just try putting a dot dot slash and then like the same ID after it and just see if that still works. Cause that's Ooh. often a really good indicator of whether or not it's working. And that's kind of, um, I don't know. It, it's, a, it's not quite esoteric. It's, it's a little more common, but it's like a weird, um, route for exploiting like SRFs and kind of a server side path traversal, if you want to call it that. Um, and I think it, it, it deserved being mentioned uh, alongside yeah. this. Yeah, for sure, man. I, I've seen those all the time and excuse me, they're, very impactful bugs if you can get them to work, yep. especially if you understand what API is being hit in the back end, yep. or you have some introspection into that through the error or something like that. Those are some crazy, crazy bugs. So, yep. and, and then just to clarify, the reason why you're saying 
put, so let's say we've got ID or UUID equals, you know, one, two, three, four, dash, whatever. Then you yeah. put a slash at the end, you put a dot, dot, slash, right? So that yep. would delete the ID you just put yep. in, right? Yep. And then you put the same ID again so that that path is should be normalizing to the same thing it was without having the any of the path traversals in there, right? Right. right. And you can imagine this in the, in the backend scenarios, basically like one service is hitting another service. The way it does that microservices. is microservices. Yeah. Yeah. Microservices hitting it through an HTTP request and it goes, you know, other internal service dot host slash ID or whatever slash API slash get slash ID or something, right? You, however you want to imagine how it's being put in there. And then if you're giving it a full value and it's not being sanitized and that's just being chucked onto the end of that URL, your path traversal is going to affect that internal microservice call and mm. be able to hit other API endpoints and other things within that other service that you may not have been intended to, to hit. And I, I see so much impact approved from these all the time. It's really insane. Some of the biggest, uh, baddest vulnerabilities I've ever seen are caused by this. And it's something yeah. that seems so simple and straightforward. So if you're not checking for that, be sure to check for that because it's, it's again, it's, it's not quite an easy win, but it, it's, it's, it definitely gives you a lot of leverage. Yeah. And I think it's systemic on the targets as well, normally, yeah. because the target is using a microservices based architecture. So if you find one, you're likely to find lots of other unique issues as well with their own unique fixes. Um, and so I'll actually also link in the in the notes for this episode um, that uh, there's a blog post by Sam Curry and I uh, that did, let's see, when did we, I'm not sure, I, this is a long time ago that we had done this. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, Sam is like the king of this type of yeah. he's the one who i like learned it off of and Same. i see so many crazy impactful bugs that are that are shown by him using this uh i, I wasn't sure which ones i i should even talk about because i know like some of them are not public so yeah well, the Starbucks uh, if you have a good example okay i do perfect, have perfect. the link <laughs> it's, it's public I, there's a blog post so we'll link it in the description if you haven't seen it that's great but um Joel, you, you, we, we, we got off topic there. The one that I'm trying to talk about here is the client-side path traversal, which is yes. different, very notably different. So yes, don't very notably different, yes. Um, this is something that happens in the user's browser. I mentioned yeah. this happens in style sheets, but it also happens in JS files, and it can also yep. happen just in, in fetch and AJAX requests, right? So requests that are being sent by the page via JavaScript. Yep. And those are very impactful as well, because if you can traverse in a context where it's trying to like, let's say it's sending a post request to like, you know, load your newsfeed or whatever, right? If you can control that path and you can hit, you know, make it hit like slash delete account, and that delete account doesn't require any, you know, parameters, then you can yep. force the user to just delete their account. I've found this bug before. Um, yep. And so definitely be on the lookout. There's a lot of different implications. It can result in um, CSS injection. It can result in XSS. It can result in um, this sort of C-surf sort of outcome. Um, and then the other thing that I, I, I don't know how much of an issue this still is, but um, there used to be this thing called 401 injection where you can inject a, uh, you know, a prompt where it would pop up and it would ask the user to type in their credentials right? And then that prompt w was actually coming from your website, but it was on the page that, uh, you know, you injected into. Um, that used to be a bug. I don't, I, I didn't get a chance to check it before this episode to see whether it's still active or not. But um, if that could also be a potential outcome from this sort of uh, client-side path traversal, if you can find an open redirect and redirect to your own site where you serve a 401. 
Yeah, I do wonder if that's still a thing. I, I remember that that class of vulnerability, but I don't actually know know if it's still accessible. That's that's with like uh, realm like authentication stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and I'm I pretty confident it's it's possible in at least one of the major browsers i just can't remember which one it is so we'll have to check that out i've got some good guesses and it's probably not chrome <laughs> yeah it's definitely not chrome cool um, all right next one cookie bombing have you have yeah. you heard of have you heard of cookie bombing slash do you do cookie bombing joel i, I uh, before i get put on the list here uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> so i i hadn't real i the I'd heard of the name and I understand like the concept, um, but until I actually read through File Descriptor's um, slides about this yeah. specifically, now it it definitely clicks, and I would kind of tie it in with the next one that we were going to talk about, which is Cookie Jar Overflow. But basically, yeah. these two classes are um, exploiting just like sort of native browser behavior around how cookies are set and sent, and so oftentimes there have been new security features that have been added to like how cookies work, for example, HTTP only um, or site secure or whatever. Um, and that make it so that they're only accessible within certain contexts and they're only sent within certain contexts. And, you know, if it's HTTP only, then your JavaScript can't read and write it. But that's fine because sometimes you control a web server that is doing that over HTTP instead of doing that over JavaScript. And so with cookie bombing, for example, you can set multiple cookies for the same host on different paths. And when they get sent, the browser doesn't distinguish whether or not, you know, oftentimes, well, maybe it does. Well, I mean, so I mean, it's the, supposed the, the to. Paths, but. The paths piece, um, you can use the different paths to bomb specific endpoints. So like you said, you know, the, the this is abusing a sort of browser level problem with cookie management, which is, if you send too many cookies, uh, it, it, the browser will still send them to the to the server, but the server will sort of, I guess this is sort of a server-side issue then, the server is going to freak out and be like, okay, whoa, 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 this request is way too big. Please, please stop, right? And it's right. going to, I forget what status code it sends. It's it's some 400 status code, um, but it, it freaks out and it doesn't like that, right? Um, and so you can set, you know, you can set enough cookies that the browser will happily send along, which essentially DOSes your access to a specific website until you delete your cookies, right? Um, right. And you literally do that just by setting, all right, cookie one equals 9,999 A's, cookie two equals 9,999 A's, you know, and then like do that until you've blown up the whole request, right? And um and that will result in the whatever user's browser you're you're setting this in, uh, not being able to access the target the target website until they clear their cookies. Right. Um, and this can be particularly tricky. Here's here's a here's a fun one here. If you do this on a sub part of a website that is not the top URL, because what what people will do sometimes is they can't access the website. They'll delete the cookies for the specific website that they're on. Right, which mm. is their top URL. But let's say you, for example, you cookie bombed the API dot domain, right? The API dot domain dot com. That's never in the user's top level browser. So if they try to delete right. their cookies for that website, then they can't do it, right? Without without right, going right. in there and actually deleting all of their cookies, which is kind of a pain in the ass because it it logs you out of literally every single website. Yeah. Um, so this is this is a really cool vuln, and you can do this with just a gadget that sets uh, allows you to inject a cookie on the website, which is fairly common. Um, and this is also a great way for you to um, show uh, an effect to availability, uh, which ups your CVSS score. Um, and it really helps with like stuff like subdomain takeovers to show impact. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's actually a cool tool idea I just thought of right now as we're saying that, which would be something that basically you could plug in your existing CVSS score, or maybe like say you have a bug and it meets certain criteria within CVSS. And then the tool would tell you if you could get that, if you could change this one factor, it would take your bug from a medium to a high or a medium to a crit or something. That's a great idea. So, so yeah. you'd have you could put in your CVSS score, and then it'll tell you, okay, your easiest ex- escalations are going to be all right. If you can figure out how to yep. affect availability just a little bit, you know, maybe try cookie bombing or something like yeah. that, dude. That's a great idea. Someone's got to build that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not us though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I got too Criti- much going on. <laughs> yeah, crit- cr- critical thinking community, please, please take that and run yeah, with it. Somebody make that tool, <laughs> even yeah. if it takes four years. <laughs> Bitcoin. Yeah, at big work. Um, <laughs> no, that's great. Um, and the, the the other thing that I was gonna say, um, specifically on uh, app cache, I mean, um, on cookie bombing, is you can use it with stuff as well, like like app cache, um, because what what'll happen if you define an app cache on a specific page, uh, if there's an error that occurs at the browser level, uh, it it will sub in a different content. So it's perfect for cookie bombing. And I've seen this. I've seen Franz abuse this. I've seen file descriptor. Um, abuse this and he actually mentions it in his talk entitled the cookie monster in your browsers which i think was the talk you were mentioning earlier um and he also mentions how you can use it to get it to not consume oauth tokens because you can cookie bomb the specific oauth endpoint right yeah Um, that was like such an interesting (laughs) attack vector so yeah i guess if you basically cookie bomb and it sets too many cookies the request will fail but the request the outbound request will still contain like the credentials or whatever in the URL. Mm-hmm. And so you can, because it's like a failed request, it doesn't hit like iframe options, I guess. Is that correct? Well, so there, there's some, there's some intricacies like that, but the one, the one that's really, you know, hel- helpful in this scenario is like, and, and it can help you avoid iframe options and some CSP stuff as well. But in this scenario, you, you're, when as soon as that that code lands on the page where the callback is, it gets used and consumed, right? So even if you have a reference to that window and with mm. an XSS or something like, you can't consume, you can't get to that token in time because it, it's gonna you're gonna lose the race every time and, and it's gonna consume the OAuth token and you can't get account takeover. But if you cookie bomb the endpoint where that OAuth code is getting returned to, when it goes to that page, it's gonna fail. But you, because you're the same origin, you can still reach into that page, grab the you know um, window location.href, and pull the code out of there, which would allow you to get escalate your XSS to ATO. It's just such a such so a crazy. great technique. I love yeah, it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, on cookie, so then like tangential to yeah. that, the cookie jar <laughs> overflow, which is kind of similar in like s- sending too many cookies or like. Yeah, sort of overflowing how the browser is behaving, but you actually have a whole tool for this, which I did not know about, called Check Cookie Jar Overflow. I yeah. I don't know what it's what it, what yeah. you call it, but it's a link yeah, well, on your on link. your domain. Yeah, <laughs> it's a link apps.renerator.dev. You guys can check it out. This is just kind of it's just kind of like if you click on it, it's kind of like a, just a scrappy little website with like a freaking um, Apache, you know, index. Yeah, it's, it's literally 20, 20 lines yeah. of HTML, including yeah. the script. <laughs> and essentially um, what it allows, so I actually, before prepping for this episode, I was like, all right, let me, you know, I was prepping for this episode. I'm like, you know, all right, all right I'm going to drop some knowledge. I'm going to, you know, show them all these cool, like weird esoteric web phones. And then I get in there and I, and I was researching for cookie bombing and I find this cookie jar overflow thing. And I'm like, what the heck is that? I've never even heard of that. And so I found it. And I think it was on the site hacker, 
yeah, hacktricks.xyz, which is really cool. Like, that's a great website, by the way. Um, Yeah. Did we talk about this last episode, too? We might have, but what hack tricks? Yeah, yeah. But again, this is like one of those like informational type documentation websites that we talked about. Where this type of resource is something that like keep it in your bookmarks and just like if you're ever stuck on something, check all of the ones that you have bookmarked because oftentimes there'll be some like weird edge stuff or just some like really interesting techniques that somebody has documented somewhere that you can take advantage of to escalate your vulnerability to the next level. Yeah, there's so many awesome, like just weird things in this hacktricks.xyz um, website. So I'll do my best to sort of go in and, and digest some of that and and put it at, back into the podcast um, in an auditory format. But when I was prepping for the the I was for the cookie bombing, I ran across this cookie jar overflow, which is really cool. And I actually um, had I known about this um, at the last live hacking event, I would have been able to save a friend a lot of time because he had to go uh, down this this path to get rid of this cookie that he needed to be gone. Um, and uh, he could have just used this technique um, and it would have just, he would have been able to get it gone in just a second. So the technique, just to be clear, is um, you essentially just set a bunch of cookies in the browser for a specific domain. And each domain has a limit on how many cookies can be associated with it in the browser. That's the cookie jar and the cookie jar limit. Um, and so if you, pr- if you exceed that limit, cookies start getting deleted oldest first. So you can edge out the other cookies in the user's browser, even if you don't know the name of that cookie. So let's say, for example, you have a cookie, um, you know, session, uh, auth session, XYZ random string equals whatever their session token is, right? You don't know what that random string is, so you can't overwrite that cookie. And if it's an HTTP only cookie, you can't access it from the JavaScript side, even if you can set cookies, right? So you need that cookie gone so you can do a session fixation. Um, and how do you, how are you going to get rid of it? Because you don't know the name of it, right? So um, this is a cool technique that you can use to do that by setting a bunch of cookies, overflowing the cookie jar, and then being able to use your own values. Um, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting is you can edge out HTTP-only cookies, even from yep. a non-HTTP-only context, which I think is really yeah. cool and seems like a little bit of an issue, right? Yeah, well, I mean, and again, this is like weird behavior that's kind of intended, but also not intended. Like, yeah. it, you know, it it abuses like one, two functionalities that both need to exist at the same time. And they kind of collide with each other tangentially, right? Where it's like yeah. HTTP only shouldn't be able to be set by JavaScript. But if you set a bunch of other cookies with JavaScript, eventually you'll have too many cookies and the HTTP only cookies will just get removed. And like, yeah. you know, that... It, what the browser is going to just have infinite memory no like you can't yeah. right so like it, these two things have to both exist and you, there's no real easy compromise there so it's super super interesting behavior and one of those things that you know have it documented keep it in the back of your brain and then when you need it you'll have it yeah for sure so we'll add some links down below the little um sort of tool that i that you mentioned before that you saw in the doc that yep. was just something that i sort of scrape together to help people understand where their cookie jar overflow limit is in the browser. So you guys can check it out. We'll link it down to below. It's apps.reinerator.dev slash cookie or 
slash check cookie jar overflow html in camel case of course so, you <laughs> yeah. know so, probably easier to just click the link you're welcome yeah. just click the link in the description <laughs> yeah. Yeah. um yeah. but uh, essentially if you go to that and you click on it it will set a bunch of cookies and tell you where your cookie jar limit is in your browser um i ran it in chrome in prep for this episode and it puts it at 180 cookies um the range for this is between i think 150 to 180 but every time i've run it i've gotten 180 so um yeah. you know you should be able to do it pretty easily yeah and maybe as some off off the pod research i would be curious if this matters more uh like the length of the cookie if that matters at all or if it's just purely number of cookies do you know i think it's just pure number of cookies because i was just setting let me take a look at the code really quickly here you say off the pod research and then you know we're going to do it right away <laughs> yeah we're going to look um, right now <laughs> yeah no it, it's just it's just you know check and then the index equals the index so i'm just saying check one equals one check two equals two and that sort of thing and it's overflowing at 180 so i i think i think it's just a number of cookies thing cool cool yeah awesome all right next one dude um this one is cross site leak um, which yeah. is sort of similar to C-Surf. Um, it's a little bit less common. Um, and I think it is going to be a, uh, I think it will be an increasingly um, common vulnerability over the next couple of years. Um, I've seen a couple of people exploit this uh, successfully at live hacking events, and I've seen it result in a critical once. Um, and essentially the concept of it is, well, it's sort of like a C-Surf, right? In that you're forcing the user to have uh, make their, have their browser make a request, but instead of having an action performed on behalf of the user, using some sort of side channel, whether it be the number of frames on the resulting page or an error, you know, a 200 or a 404, you can determine whether or not the user is uh, in some sort of sta some state. Um, and so you can determine, you know, something about the user's presence in the application uh, based off of that. Um, and so I, there's a couple techniques that you can use for this here. Um, one of the ones that I think is really cool is frame counting. So essentially you can open up a, a new tab in, in a window. And one of the few things that you can access cross, um, cross uh, origin, right? When you're reaching into a different frame um, is the uh, frame's length uh, attribute in, uh, on a window. So you can see mm -hmm. how many sub subframes are in the application. So let's say you submit a, um, a search into some sort of cross-site search functionality where you've got a query parameter, you know, equals whatever. And if there are results, then there will be another iframe on the page. Maybe it'll show you like a preview of the results or something like that. If there aren't results, then there won't be an iframe. And you can use that difference along with the frame length trick to determine whether or not that user has access to whatever thing you're searching for in the browser, which can result in a in a pretty interesting um, leak of information, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's super interesting. I had never heard of this technique at all. Um, there's a whole domain for it, xsleaks.dev. Um, and it basically just goes over like a lot of the different like browser features and tricks and nuances and defense mechanisms for the other side as well. Um, and yeah, this is a really useful resource. So I'm going to, I definitely put this in my bookmarks. Um, and I was just really, you know, it's cool to see this type of, again, this type of more like informational research that's d documenting like strange behaviors, things that exist, oh. things that you might be able to use to chain with your existing vulnerabilities to make them more impactful. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. I think a lot of companies care about leakage of data, even if it's an Oracle type thing like this is, 
Yeah. And it's definitely uh, a useful. I've had some companies say no to that before. You know, I've had like some Oracle related stuff like, you know, is this user an admin or is this user, you know, a member of a specific organization or something like that? Um, I think those, I think those could definitely be helpful in attack chains, but you definitely got to realize when you're submitting these sort of bugs that um, it is sort of a a risk, you know? Um, So definitely keep that in mind. Um, one of the things that I did think of, well, first, let me let me talk about some of the ways you can exploit this. So we talked about frame counting, right? That's that technique where you can um, determine the number of sub, excuse me, subframes on a window object. Mm-hmm. There's also another one that this is really cool. Uh, Joel, I, I thought you'd appreciate this one because I had never seen this one before. Um, you can actually count the history dot length um, and it can release information. So what happens is you're on an attacker's page user clicks a button, you open up a new tab, right? The user is in that new tab. You're distracting the user. In the previous tab, um, you can iterate through um, some, you can go to some URL. And if that URL redirects, it will take you to a a, a third URL, right? And then you can redirect back to using the window object. You can redirect back to the the main page. So now you're on the same origin between the two pages and you check the history.length. And it will tell you how many, you know, changes in the history have occurred since, you know, you, you check the history dot length. Um, and so that's another way that you can sort of leak really cool um, sort of side channel stuff. And I'm not sure how, like how this could be used. Um, this could definitely be used in a way to tell if a user is a part of an organization or not. That's definitely something that's possible. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm really interested to hear, you know, what other stuff people comes up with, uh, using this technique. Cause I think, I think there are definitely possibilities for it. Yeah. Yeah. I think as browsers get more hardened, we're going to have to get a little more creative with these yeah. types of techniques that we're talking about, because some of the things that we took for granted as way, ways to easily escalate bugs, like before HTTP only just being able to read all the cookies from JavaScript, right? Like that's not a thing yeah. anymore. So now you have to figure out more creative ways to get information about the user or infer different states and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, um, it's really awesome to see this type of research. And even in the era of same site cookies as well, you know, we've, we've had that restriction come in place now. Um, yeah, there's, we're even having to get more, more creative using window.open rather than using iframes and such. So we're losing some of this flexibility, but um the last one that I think is really interesting, sort of a cross-site leak technique that I found out was if you open up a PDF in Chrome, okay, it will provide you with a post-message-based interface for that PDF, even cross-origin. So I was thinking hmm. this would be a really cool technique, um, an attack vector, okay? Let's say you've got an application that has a customer. Um, you know, you can in- click you know, go to a specific URL and it will load up a PDF for that specific customer, right? And that's a numeric ID. So, you know, once again, you do the window.open trick and then you start iterating through customer IDs, right? If, and you can tell whether it's a PDF or not via this post message interaction. So now you're iterating through, iterating through, iterating through, and you can tell how many customers a given person has by whether right. the response is a PDF or not via this cross-site link. And I think right. that's definitely some impactful stuff um for sure you know being able to tell whether or not you know their customer how at what pace their customer base is increasing um yeah so that's another cool technique there that i didn't know about the the, the pdf thing uh, exposing a post message listener that's kind of crazy yeah yeah that that competitive intelligence stuff is is pretty valuable to a lot of companies oh, yeah. yeah cool 
All right. Sorry, uh, sorry for ranting on that one. No, dude. no, I, no. That's I, I totally fine. I love cross-site leaks. I think that's such a cool type of vulnerability. Yeah, I don't I really even know where you found this domain. It's it's really yeah. cool. Yeah. All right. So the next one, UNC path leaks. You want to take that or should I? Oh, yeah. I can talk a little bit about it. But um, so UNC, what is it? Universal Network Convention, Naming Convention. Um, basically, mm-hmm. it's like the paths that you see on uh, typically on Windows where it's like backslash backslash something um and so oftentimes you can inject into these in a, like a ton of different places um it'll be maybe in like a file inclusion or maybe it'll be a path traversal or, or a desktop um, app- application or, yeah a desktop application or something like that that has that's running t- again typically on windows um but it's a really good way to escalate and sort of pivot and navigate horizontally within a system that maybe you can escalate that vertically, but oftentimes it's going to be pivoting to other services or systems or network drives or something like that that are accessible within the host that you can then take to your advantage to really prove the impact of your of your bug and just showing that you can interact with stuff outside of that application or within other parts of the network is already like a really big impact pr- provider. So, um, you know, yeah, very very along the same lines as like path path traversal path injection that type of stuff but yeah was there specific things you wanted to mention yeah well the other thing that i wanted to mention is like the use of repeater with this so let's say for example you have a um a deep link you can provide to a windows desktop app and that will open up you know some file of your choice right you can provide it with a unc path there um, which is a path to link to a, to a specific server and a share you, um, on that server, right? So what will happen by default is Windows will try to authenticate into that share and it will send your NTLM v2 hash um, to that server, even though it's not in the local network. Right. It doesn't happen, you know, it could be anywhere. Um, and you can use a tool called, excuse me, a tool called Repeater to catch that and pull the hash. Um, that'll leak a couple things to you. One, it'll leak the username of the um, server, whoever's uh, you know using that specific, whoever's making that connection. So if on the desktop app, it would be you know the user of the of the PC on an actual server. When you've got like an SSRF sort of thing, that would be the the server username, and then also the NTLM v2 hash of that user, which. One it is a password hash um, that you can crack offline, so that could definitely be helpful for proving impact. Um, and I believe there are some cool things you can do with NTLM v2 hashes as well that's beyond just password cracking, but I have to research into that. Um, but I know for sure that you can then take that password and crack it offline, which is um, a, a pretty helpful way to increase your ability to uh, pivot within that network. Yeah, totally. This is uh, one of those things that's a little bit outside of my realm of like familiar knowledge it's like, like it's network more pen testing stuff yeah exactly it's more like uh you know you're doing like a network pen test and you know you found some vulnerable windows image or, or instance mm-hmm. or something like that um more kind of on the like the metasploit type route not that that's like a bad thing but like more like there are there's lots of tools and stuff that are built around this type of stuff and typically the type of hacking that we're doing is like web hacking or like yeah. mobile hacking maybe hardware hacking but generally not like internal pen test type stuff yeah. where the ntlm hashes are going to be leaked um but i think there's a huge body of resource uh, resources and research out there that covers this type of information and how to exploit um, ntlm hashes and what to do with them i know mimi cats is a pretty popular tool um for that type of stuff so yeah um, the the um so i I think it's it's very important to have this sort of cross-discipline 
um, yeah. knowledge though, because you know we've seen, uh, especially in the desktop app exploitation arena, which is something we see in bug bounty a decent bit still. Um, yeah. I've seen this bug, you know, result this little quirk result in uh, much higher bounties for some of the desktop level applications. Um, yeah. Because you know, uh, understandably. Uh, software providers don't want to be responsible for leaking their users' NTLM v2 hash right. to whoever. Um, yeah. So keep that in mind if you're doing any desktop level hacking, whether it be you know um, electron based stuff or native clients right. or whatever. Yeah, because again, like this is like a pivot from application vulnerability to OS problem, right? Where like if your application is leaking a hash to the OS user, you've now yeah. compromised that whole user within the entire yeah. os it's no yeah. longer about your application it's about the entire user and if their system is exposed at all now you can use those credentials to gain access to their system even further and like totally exploit the user beyond the application and the implications of just that application so i think sure. it's a huge impact provider if you can figure out a way to exploit it effectively yeah absolutely okay um let's let's have this next one be the last one here um, I entitled this one impactful link hijack. Yeah. Um, cause we've seen some link hijacking vulnerabilities and stuff like that pop up on the hacktivity, you know, in the past that are kind of crappy that are just like, yeah, you know, you're, you're I took over your to, Instagram on I your took, yeah, homepage. Like, yeah. Oh, somebody forgot to, you know, re refresh this domain or whatever. And that, that's kind of like, okay, you know, I feel like that's more of a QA issue or like a web design team issue. You know, it's less of a security yeah. issue, but there is a specific um, subset of these issues called that I, I just deem impactful link hijacking, um, <laughs> which um, when, is when this sort of thing happens in the CI flow or in, within within source code. <coughs> Excuse me, man, this cold is really getting the better of me. Yeah, it's um, funny because over the last fi like fifty five minutes or so, you've progressively yeah. gotten more and more like someone who smokes six packs of cigarettes a day. Yeah, dude, you can, you can do it. Yeah, that's the struggle with having a podcast is like, oh man, I got to get on here and talk every single week with my voice. Um, Finally, all those but, meetings are, are putting me to good use. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, just the thing that I wanted people to take away with this one thing is like, if you can go to a GitHub repo and like find a script that's being curled or, or um, find a, a, old domain that's being reached out to or like an S3 bucket. S3 buckets are really common, Heroku instances, that sort of thing. And you're able to inject yourself either in the CI pipeline or in the source code um, uh, you know, context, then there can be some really impactful vulnerabilities there. Um, yeah. I am not doing as much GitHub scanning anymore. I used to be pretty big on the GitHub scanning, because, uh, but be since they sort of started cracking down on that sort of thing, I, I've, I, you know, various secrets being linked and that sort of thing. I've, I've spent less time there, but I know yeah. for a fact that people are still finding very impactful vulnerabilities via, you know, finding um, expired domains or S3 buckets or Hoku instances or whatever yep. inside of source code and CI pipelines. Yep. Yeah. And in addition to that, um, it doesn't have to be within like a script automatically if you want to provide an impact. So like who I was hacking with a couple weeks ago, um, he found a really interesting bug that was basically exactly this, where mm -hmm. there was a set of instructions that were in a GitHub repo for how to set up a tool. And mm -hmm. those instructions included a bunch of set of commands. And in those set of commands, it was pulling down a resource from an S3 bucket. And that S3 bucket didn't exist. And he was able to take over the S3 bucket and prove impact by saying, look, this is in the readme. If somebody were to copy paste this, which is completely a plausible scenario, they yeah. would be pulling resources down from my bucket. And 
you know it was accepted so i think like that's just like a great example of like one it doesn't have to be directly in a script but like just the fact that they're using it and they're advocating for you like the user to be pulling something from that resource if that resource doesn't exist anymore that's direct impact because they're they're explicitly telling you hey use this domain well that domain is no longer safe so i think like anything like down that sort of path is a is a good way to to have impactful link hijacking right it doesn't always have to be like oh i took over your instagram username or whatever Mm -hmm. like i think that stuff exists as well for uh open source code and open source scripts and all that kind of stuff that you that you mentioned yeah for sure man all right i think that's that's a wrap that's seven um you know esoteric web vulnerability types hopefully y'all learned something from that i i definitely did while researching for it um if you guys wouldn't mind, definitely head over to ctbb.show, drop your email in the uh, newsletter subscription there. That would be a big help to us. And uh, yeah, anything else you got, Joel, before we sign off? No, I think that's it. I'm, uh, I've am i got a bunch of new bookmarks and tools to download. Yeah, and get, so. same, same, man. I'm going to go play around with that Bitpark short scan tool right after this. Yeah, awesome. All right. Hope you, hopefully your your voice and your, your cold goes away and uh, hopefully you, you feel a little better. But I'll, I'll see you next week. Thanks, man. Yeah, hopefully I'll be recovered for next week. All right. Cool. Peace. Peace.